Welcome to Layer Zero. Layer Zero is a podcast of unscripted conversations with the people that make up the Ethereum community. Crypto is built by code, but it's composed by people, and each individual member of the crypto community has their own story to tell. Cypherpunks understood that the code they write impacts the people that use it, and Layer Zero focuses on the people behind the code because Ethereum is people all the way down, and it always has been. Today, we are speaking with G Money, the famous knitted cap ape on Twitter and a prolific just market investor. And G Money has been sharpening his teeth in markets from a very, very early age. He got into the world of markets at the age of 12. So the world of finance, the world of markets definitely pulled him in very, very early. And getting those lessons early in his lifetime really helped him get eventually into the world of crypto. I think he's a phenomenal person to actually be able to remove bias and personal interest in markets and really just being able to look at the broad market as a whole and make informed decisions after that. And that's what allowed him to really establish himself before getting into crypto and then got into crypto in 2017, smartly used the lessons of the dot-com bubble to time-ish the top of the market, and then not have to go through the grueling bear market, and then also fantastically timed getting back into crypto. And so really just used, kind of in the same way when we were talking to DC, used his experiences in legacy markets to really inform his guidance into crypto markets. And then we go into his transition into the worlds of NFTs. And I really like the juxtaposition between G Money's time in NFTs versus G Money's time in TradFi markets, where one is very transactional, one is very just like performance based. NFTs are much more community based. And, you know, what are NFTs other than art? So, art based as well. I think it really tells a fantastic story of character development of going from, you know, cold traditional markets into warm, fuzzy NFT community markets. So, I hope you enjoy this conversation with G Money. Before we get to that conversation, however, we have to talk for a moment about some of these fantastic sponsors that make this show possible. The era of proof of stake is upon us, and Lido is working to bring proof of stake to everyone. Lido is a decentralized staking protocol that allows users to stake on Ethereum, Terra, and Solana, and receive an interest-bearing token in return. Stake any amount of your ETH to the Lido validating network and receive STETH in return. This STETH can be traded, used as collateral for lending or borrowing, or leveraged on your favorite DeFi protocol, and all this without locking up your ETH in a centralized staking service or exchange. That's what Lido is here to do. Lido makes staking accessible to everyone at the click of a button. By delegating your stake to Lido's network of nodes, you can access the yield offered by proof-of-stake systems and claim your share of network transaction rewards. Do you have 32 ETH and want to stake it to Ethereum, but running a node sounds intimidating? Or maybe you have less than 32 ETH and you need to pool your ETH with others so you can access staking yields. Lido offers a solution to both. Simply go to lido.fi, choose which assets you want to stake and deposit them to the Lido validating network. Lido is making sure proof of stake stays as decentralized as possible and is committed to decentralizing its own validating networks to eventually become a completely permissionless protocol. So if you want to stake your ETH, Terra, or Sol and get liquidity on your stake, go to Lido.fi to get started. When you shop for plane tickets, you probably use Kayak, Expedia, or Google to compare ticket prices. So why would you limit yourself to just one exchange when you trade crypto? When you make your trades, you want to make sure that you are getting the best possible price on your trade and that you aren't paying high gas costs that you could have otherwise avoided. That's why you should be using Matcha. Matcha routes your orders across all the various DeFi exchanges on Ethereum, Polygon, Binance Smart Chain, and gives you the best possible prices without taking any commission. Matcha has smart order routing that splits your order 
across multiple liquidity sources if Matcha sees that it gets you better pricing. Trading on Matcha is super easy because it pulls the liquidity for me into a single easy to use platform and that has even saved me multiple times from accidentally picking the wrong decks to trade on and accidentally getting a bad price. Matcha also allows for you to make limit orders on chain so you can set and forget your DeFi trades and they will go through automatically while you're away. New to Matcha is an integrated fiat on ramp so you can purchase crypto directly with your credit or debit card and have that fiat be instantly traded for any token that has liquidity. When you're making a trade, head over to matcha.xyz slash bankless and connect your wallet to start getting the best prices and most liquidity when you trade your crypto assets. Hey G-Money, how's it going? Hey, how are you? How are you doing? Thanks for having me. Fantastic. On. I'm uh, I'm a huge fan, so so glad to finally make it on the podcast. Yeah, you are going to be the first pseudo anonymous person on Layer Zero. And for those that are actually watching the video, there is an animated CryptoPunk monkey with the knitted cap, which of course is G Money's famous ape CryptoPunk. How did you get this animation? How, how does animation work? Um, this was actually made by uh, Crypto Novo uh, and a couple people that he works with. That when uh, it was like in January or February. When um, I bought the ape, and you know, I was I was talking about punks uh, a lot at the beginning of the year. Um, he is a fellow punk holder. Uh, he owns a tassel, and he was like, "Hey, like, let me get you a Snapchat filter that you can use on Zoom calls." And I was like, "That sounds amazing," and uh, I've been using it ever since. I love it. Yeah. And so again, for the people listening to this, the mouth, G-Money's mouth actually moves and it looks like the eyes actually blink too, which is pretty crazy. And also if you turn your head, it looks like it's very 3D. So yeah, it's a 3D rendering of the ape. <laughs> that's, that's fantastic. Okay. This is like, this is super cool. Cause I also saw Scooby Troubles from Alchemix do this with like an anime character. And this is a perfect moment in time to really be injecting some of these Snapchat filters because we're all talking about the metaverse. And now we get to like layer on these new like virtual representations of who we are as we are on these Zoom calls, really enabling like the pseudo anonymous people on crypto Twitter and around to still be on camera, but still also be be anonymous. I think this is really fantastic. Yeah, I, I think it's it's super cool. And I think we're probably going to see more and more of this going forward, right? Like mm -hmm. <clears throat> when I got into NFTs, I understood them right away because of Fortnite. Um, and, mm -hmm. you know, the way people, the way kids will change their skins every 15 to 20 minutes, like I wouldn't be surprised if, you know, you have multiple lenses where, you know, I want to be an ape on this on this call and I want to be a unicorn on the next one, right? Like, I think it's, mm -hmm. I think this would be really cool and in, in opening up a, a whole new world of uh, personalization. Right, right. I'll put on my ape while I'm gaming. I'll put on my suit and tie while I'm on Zoom. Yeah. And yeah, it's really like choose your own adventure, choose your own identity as the time comes for it. Exactly. G-Money, where did the name G-Money come from? <clears throat> so my name begins with a G and mm -hmm. uh it's uh, a very ethnic name, so uh, mm. a lot of people couldn't pronounce it growing up in the tri-state area of New York City. And mm -hmm. people called me G as a nickname, and I got uh, G money because I always had uh, a knack for making money. So uh, <laughs> like that, that's one that stuck throughout high school and college. And I definitely want to pick up on that knack as we go through this story. So let's go all the way back. When did the knack of making money start? When did you realize that you had a knack for this? Um, well, <clears throat> let's see. I first started following the stock market when I was 12 years old. Uh, and, okay, so bit extremely early. Yeah. And, you know, I for some reason, when, when I was little, when I was like five or six, uh, like on the Dow Jones, it kind of tells you, uh, or on the nightly news, it tells you, oh, the Dow Jones went up or down today. And I remember asking my, my dad, like, 
what's the Dow Jones? And he was like, that's gambling. Don't ever do that. And obviously, <laughs> naturally, I was drawn to it. And so mm-hmm. um, when I was 12, uh, my grandmother bought me the Wall Street Journal Guide to Investing. Uh, and that like kind of taught you how to read stock tables and like what a bond is and, you know, what a stock is. And it was super, super basic. And when is this your grandma going around your dad? Uh, no, I'm like sneaking it to you. This was like no. one day we're like at Barnes and Nobles and I'm like, oh, okay. you know, can, can you buy this for me? And obviously like, it's a book, like you're going to buy that right. for a kid if, if he's asking for it. Right. Okay. And so, uh, I was, uh, you know, like I hadn't really, I was always, I guess, curious at that point, but I hadn't really done anything with it until I was like 12 around there. And then when I went to high school, I got an academic scholarship to go. I went to a private school and I made a deal with my parents that uh, the money that they would have spent on my tuition, they they let me invest. And that was in like 96, 97. So um, I was able to, to take that money, which obviously at the time was significant to me. And I invested in the stock market. Uh, I made a bunch of money. And then- was, it, was that a hard thing to convince your parents? It's like, hey, give me money so I can go invest in it? No, it wasn't because like it was, I think they saw it as like education and they saw that I was already like really into the stock market. Like I would like okay. get the night, I would get the newspaper every day and I would like check stock quotes. Right. Like this is okay. like, okay. like as the internet was evolving, right. Like I mean, right. I'm in my late thirties. So like the internet wasn't prolific at that point. Right. Like my first internet experience was on a 28 K modem. Uh, okay. So this was like before you could check stock quotes from from your phone and, and stuff like that. Okay, so with regards to your parents, this was definitely like beyond a phase for you. Now this was very much a part of like what you were really interested in. Yeah, it was it was probably one of the things I was the most interested in um, at, at that time. Like more so than than sports or or anything else is like really just being enamored with the market, right? Mm-hmm. And uh, and so like I invested, I invested the money, <clears throat> I rode the dot com bubble, you know, made a bunch of money didn't sell anything and wrote it all the way back down. Right. Mm -hmm. So that was obviously like a super valuable experience for me that uh, became super important later on as I, as I got into crypto. And, uh, you know, I went, I went to college, uh, one of my best trades, uh, until literally, uh, this year, uh, getting into NFTs was, I remember I was interning in the city going into my senior year of college. And uh, I was in New York City interning. I'm on the subway and I look around and I was like, wow, like everybody has these white headphones in their ear. Right. Like, right. And this is back when the MP3 market was massively fragmented. And I just noticed like, you know, uh, businessmen, high schoolers, like everybody on the train consistently had these white headphones in. And that was the original iPod, uh, yep. the original iPod for listening to music. Yep. I remember thinking way back then, or somebody else thought this thought, I was too young to think it myself, but somebody said, Apple did a very, very good job making all of their headphones white. Yeah. Yeah. Cause it was differentiated, right? Cause everyone mm-hmm. else had your classic black headphones and it didn't stand out. And so I remember sitting in the subway and being like, oh, wow, like, let me buy some Apple calls. And I don't know what it is split adjusted now, but at the time it was like $10 a share. I bought the $20 calls for 49 cents or or 62 cents. And then I sold them for $49 uh, within 18 months. And, you know, I was like, wow, like that, like this, this is cool. Like I can make a living out of this. Right. Um, How old were you at the time? uh, I was 
20, I was either 20 or 21. I was going into my senior year of college. Right. Right. Okay. Yeah. So very, very rare for somebody in college to have a a sort of windfall. Yeah. And like, to me, it's like, I was like, wow, this is definitely what I want to be doing um, in the future. But uh, I'm an only child and my father uh, is an immigrant and he had a business that I was set to take over. And so I went and I worked with him for three years in that business. And then he called me into his office one day and said, listen, this is what you're doing. You're, you're doing this for me. Um, and because of that, I love you for it. I really appreciate it. But like, you're, you're not going to succeed because you're not doing it for you. You're doing it for me. This was my dream. It's not yours. And so he told me, he's like, go like find a job on Wall Street because that's what you're passionate about. And so at that point, like because I had experienced success with like that Apple trade and a couple of other things, I was like, all right, I can go. And and at this point, I'm like 24, 25. And I'm like, all right, I can either I can go to a bank and like try to work my way up the ladder and get my own book and kind of like have my own pad by the time I'm 30 or like I had experienced a ton of success already. I just need to learn how to trade and make money in the shorter time frame. And, Mm -hmm. you know, because my investments generally would play out. And so I was like, all right, like, let me go put money up. And I put money up at a prop firm Mm -hmm. and I learned how to trade. Right. And that was in um, I started in like July of 2007. So it was right before the financial crisis. Like, Mm -hmm. you know, in like I, I was before that, like I was short countrywide. I shorted Bear Stearns. Like I like saw the writing on the wall. If I knew what CDS was, I probably wouldn't be here at this moment because I would have uh, made a ton of money off that, but I had no idea what it was. Wow. You shorted the housing market before it crashed? Yeah. I mean, I was, dude, I had countrywide puts when it was at like 35 bucks. Oh my God. That's epic. So Bought Apple calls and shorted, shorted the market in 2007. That's, that's insane. And, and yeah, and like, you know, a lot of it was just kind of just being just understanding like what trends right. we're doing. Right. And like mm-hmm. understanding like the macro of things and, and how mm-hmm. that affects the micro. And, you know, in, in, in 2008, in September, 2008, I, I went long, like a ton of silver and gold. And like, I, I did great off the bottom. Uh, mm-hmm. I admittedly like, didn't know about Bitcoin. If not, I probably right. would have bought some, you know, I, I think it was like in 2010, I don't know exactly when, but I remember, uh, Finding out about Bitcoin uh, around that time, 2010, 2012 timeframe, when B- Bitcoin was at around $27 and I was on I was on Zero Hedge and it was posted on Zero Hedge for the first time. And I was like, wow, this is really cool. And I was like, all right, like I was trying to figure out how to buy some. I couldn't figure out how to buy it. And then like I just kind of gave up and then like I saw it started running and it went to like a thousand bucks and then it pulled all the way back to 200. And I was like, OK, that like that's that was the bubble, right? Like that okay. was it. And then I didn't really look at Bitcoin for, for a couple of years after that. Okay. I definitely want to get into the yeah. Bitcoin story, but I also want to back up and go all the way back. So okay. we definitely have like a grasp on like your early interest into markets and definitely having a knack for that. I want to talk a little bit about your education. Okay. Were, were there any like classes in school, high school or college that really, really resonated with you? Like any kind of subject matter specifically? Um, I mean, I majored in finance. Uh, so mm-hmm. like I was okay. always... I always liked like valuation stuff. So I'd say probably uh, in high school, there was only really one business class. There was an economic class, which I took, which I loved. And then in college, like as I'm sitting here thinking about it, probably uh, a tax class, which I took, which you mm-hmm. know was just like really boring, but like super informative and practical. Sure. And then also like um, 
a private uh, evaluation of private businesses, which was basically like, you know, how to value companies through cash flows, DCF and, and all that kind of stuff, which I think is super relevant to uh, like even just publicly traded companies. But to me, I was always I was always very interested in uh, the market side of things, the publicly traded stuff. Right. So I'm going to go ahead and guess that your education really happened hands on, right, in a live environment more than it did actually like in a, in a classroom. Oh, that yeah. sound about right? Yeah. Like, mm-hmm. I, I mean, I think those two classes that I mentioned are probably the most relevant classes where I learn stuff. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it's like understanding price action and psychology. It's like that's like mass psychology. Like you learn all that stuff like on the job. Right. Like you only learn it by right. feeling it like I can tell you like like, oh, like when the price moves against you, you should do this or it goes in your favor, take profits here. But like you really don't know until you live it. Right. Like you've been in crypto now for a minute. Like you understand that like mm-hmm. you're you're when you're like when you're feeling the most ecstatic about your position, you should be selling some. And when yep. you're feeling the most depressed about your position, you should be buying some. Right. Because yep. that's just the nature that of works. human psychology, yep. no matter what market you're in. Right. That is the markets, right? Like if you are feeling depressed, so is the market when yeah. the market is also depressed, right? And so like you can take your own internal cues and apply them to the market. Absolutely. Um, so in the younger phases of your stock market finance education career, be it in university or being hands-on, you said you looked around and you saw everyone wearing white earbuds. And so you got into Apple. Then then you saw the writing on the wall with the housing market and short of that. And then you got into gold. For me, like, I didn't really care about anything in finance until I discovered crypto. And so that was my thing. But it sounds like you are more broad. You don't have actually no like personal interest in any one sector, be it like tech or housing or gold or whatever. Was there any, so what, what, like part of before crypto, any part of like the financial markets that really resonated with you as a sector? Or is it really just playing the game as a whole? So, I mean, I think like as I think about it, I very much understand and i like i like consumer discretionary in general like as uh as a tech as a stock investor and market participant i'm generally a generalist uh but Mm -hmm. i understand consumer trends the best right so it's like the apple made sense to me because literally i'm just sitting on a subway and i saw it a couple of years later uh i don't know the exact year but like maybe 2005 2006 like True Religion Jeans, I don't know if you remember that fad. I do, um, I do. That was a publicly traded company. And I remember riding it from like four bucks up to like 20 because like everybody that was fashionable was wearing them, right? And there was this mm-hmm. huge boon. And so like, to me, it's like, I very much just like, was just paying attention to data and just being cognizant of these things that happen. Um, again, like I think to me, a lot of it, the way I see it is like, that's very, all these things are very consumer focused. And mm-hmm. obviously at the end of the day, I think the gold trade is, you know, the gold silver trade is why we all end up in crypto, right? Where it's like hard money and not like money printing is, uh, ended up what kind of drawing me into to crypto in, in the first place. While you were going through this like early phase of your finance stock market life, were you doing this alone or did you have friends, like-minded friends doing like-minded activities? So for the most part, like in high school, it was definitely me on my own. In college, it was still like me on my own. Uh, when I started trading full-time, obviously I was trading at, at a prop firm. Uh, with a lot of people who are also like-minded trading their own money. So, you know, I feel like when you have your own money on the line, it's very, you treat it very differently than if you're running somebody else's money. Um, and so like, to me, I very much, uh, I guess I kind of started finding my tribe um, around like 25, 
you know, and like my business partner on the equity side, we've been working together since, you know, 2007, which is, I don't know, about 14, 15 years at this point. Before we get into how going with somebody changed your uh, disposition, how did you as an individual, everyone has their own like risk tolerance. Everyone has their own like personal interest in risk or not. How did that part of your financial life come into play? Like when did you learn that you were where on the risk spectrum? Um, I think I was always pretty far out on the risk curve. I, and I think yeah. that's pretty evident with, you know, the the play I made in NFTs at the beginning of the year. And mm-hmm. I very much like manage, like I think as a trader, as anybody that's dealing with uh, like financial assets in public markets, like you're a risk manager, right? Like that's your entire job, right? Like you need to size accordingly. You don't want to be too big. You don't want to be too small. You need to be just right. And so, you know, I think I'm further out on the risk curve than most, but I also understand that because I have so much leverage in, let's say my trading life, like I will like buy a house with no mortgage, right? Because I understand that like, that's not somewhere where I need leverage, right? Like if I was working a nine to five job, making an annual salary, of course I want that leverage because I wanna appreciate, I wanna uh, participate in the appreciation of the asset. But I know that me personally, like I don't need like something that necessarily is safe where if everything went to hell, you know, I still have a place to sleep, right? And that's kind of the way I see the world very much is like, okay, what's the risk in this? What am I risking? You know, what what am I? What do I realistically think my risk is in this? And size accordingly, right? You know, like because and I think I I was doing it a lot on a day to day basis. Obviously, trading where it's like, okay, like I think like I'm risking twenty five cents, but if I'm risking fifty cents, it's like double the risk, right? And like that messes up the entire risk reward. So to me, I always 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 focus on position sizing and what I think my initial risk is and and what I think I could lose in any given moment. And that helps determine like what I want to do with regards to the position. Most people who are into crypto and likely most people coming into crypto don't come from finance like you do, but most people don't actually like cognitively think about risk. They just kind of do their thing and then risk maybe comes for them or maybe it doesn't. When did you start like cognitively thinking about risk? Was that like very, very early on in your finance career or like did it come around later? It didn't start really coming around until I started trading professionally because Mm -hmm. I think like in order to be successful, uh, like, I mean, listen, trading markets is probably, I'd say probably the hardest job in the world. It's, you know, you're, it's emotionally taxing, you have to be very, very disciplined. Like, you know, I've trained a lot of people throughout the years and I will say the number one thing that determines whether you're successful in in publicly traded markets is your discipline, right? Because like, mm-hmm. if let's say you're risking $100 and, and this was like a lesson I always tried to teach kids when like they were starting is like, you know, if let's say you're risking $100 and you lose $120, okay, cool, that's not that big of a deal, right? It's an extra $20, you're still gonna be able to eat tonight, but, you know, let's leverage that up like, you know, a hundred X, right. And like, if you're risking a hundred thousand dollars and you lose a hundred twenty thousand dollars, like that's a, that's, that's a big drawdown. That's significantly more than you were risking. And that messes up your upside scenarios, right. That messes up all your risk reward on any trade that you might take. So to me, it became very, very evident very early on, uh, especially from the people that taught me is like, you need to be disciplined. You need to have a system and, you know, you need to understand that, like, you're not, you know, going to always be right. And you don't, you know, there's a difference between trading to make money and trading to be right. Right. And you're not going to make money if you're trading to be right. 
Did you learn the whole just risk management behavior from taking a big L at all? Or did you just kind of learn a bit just from time? Yeah, like, I mean, I think I've took, taken big L's throughout my career, right? Like, I think mm -hmm. uh, really young, uh, making a ton of money in the dot-com bubble and not selling anything because sure, I didn't right. want to pay taxes is like, mm -hmm. you, know, I, <laughs> you know, I went up from like five or six X down to like, you know, losing 90%, right? So it's like, right. to me, like, that was a, like a very valuable lesson early on that, you know, especially as, you know, you make it a professional career, like I'm never necessarily married to a position, right? It's like, this is a trade. And if I'm wrong, like I have to get out, right? Or, you know, like I, when I hit my risk limit, like I have to get out, right? And, and that's, to me, is probably the hardest part about trading, right? Is, you know, if you, the more conviction you have in something, the harder it is to let go. And it's against human nature to like take that loss and kind of regroup and rethink about it from a clear head, you know? I, I was actually just talk, chatting with somebody uh, over the weekend where they were telling me that, like, I guess in the March bottom last year of, of crypto, where they sold the bottom and then bought it back, like, you know, a day or two later, like at a slightly higher price. And I'm like, that was the right thing to do. You know what I mean? Oh, that's, that's, I did that. <laughs> that, that was exactly me. But that's the right <laughs> thing to do, right? Like, that's the beauty mm -hmm. of like a very liquid market, right? Like if you, if you did that with real estate, you wouldn't be able to get right. back in. But yeah, like the right. beautiful thing about things that trade 24 hours all the time is that you could literally, you could buy it and then you'd be like, oh no, that wasn't the right decision. You could sell it and it costs you like, you know, 50 right. bips. Like it, it, it right. costs you like nothing. And and so to me, it's like, there's nothing more important than having a clear head when you're making these really important decisions. And that was something I learned like on the job, uh, thankfully through the people that taught me and and, and my experience. So when in your in your timeline did you cross the one million mark? Um, uh, it was I, it was at some point in my twenties. Um, mm -hmm. You know, it was I did really well, obviously um, off the bottom in in uh, in March of two thousand in two the well in in September two thousand eight March of two thousand nine I did really well, um, and then you know I experienced like a hard time in my trading career in like 2014, 2015 maybe, uh, where I gave back a lot of what I made uh, just because the market was just very hard to trade at that time. Mm -hmm. So I think it's time to go into uh, the Bitcoin crypto story. So where we left this off is you saw Bitcoin around $20. You wanted to buy it, but it was too hard. Watch it go to a thousand, watch it drop to $200. What happens next? And so like, I, I just wasn't paying attention to it afterwards, right? Like I was just like, I would pay attention to it whenever like it popped up on Zero Hedge or the news. Like I knew what it was. Cause like, I remember the first time I read about it, I, I was like, going down the rabbit hole for like two or three hours. I couldn't figure out how to buy it. And I was like, oh, like that was it, tulips. Mm -hmm. And then uh, in mid 2017, early 2017, Bitcoin starts getting back above a thousand bucks. And I'm like, right. oh, like me- the bubbles student, back, right? Yeah, me as a student of price action, like there's something here, right? Like if, if price gets back above there and it's holding, like, this would be something that I'm paying attention to. So I decided to do a deep dive. And from that deep dive, I find Ethereum. And I'm like, wow, this is even better than Bitcoin, right? Because like there's programmers on here. And like, mm -hmm. I want to go where the devs are because that's where the talent is going. And then I started going down the ICO rabbit hole. And, you know, mm -hmm. I caught, let's say, like the mid to late stage cycle of that. Uh, and I remember in like Q1 of 2018 being like, this tech is really good. It's going to change the world, 
but I was, I still remembered my experience back, back in high school, right? Where uh, obviously the internet was going to change the world, but every, all valuations got ahead of themselves. So I sold anything that I had that was liquid in Q1. And I was mm-hmm. like, I'll be back. And I'm like, it's going to take like seven to 10 years to build out blockchain tech right. because I was using the dot-com uh, parallel, right? Where right. the the 90s came, like, you know, the, bub- the bubble popped in 2000 and then the internet that we really use today didn't come about till like 2010. So I was like, all right, tech is going to move a little faster. So maybe seven years. And, you know, I sold anything that I had that was liquid and I was still keeping an eye on it from, from afar. And, um, you know, when, when Jerome Powell said in March of 2020 that he was buying everything, I wired a bunch of money over to Coinbase, did my first uh, rebuy of crypto in, in like three years. And I started going back down the rabbit hole and I was like, holy shit, like they built some really cool stuff, <laughs> like very fast, right? Like the first time mm-hmm. I used Ave, I was like, this is going to change the world. And mm-hmm. so, you know, I started listening to as many uh, podcasts as I can. Like that's where I found you guys and started listening to you guys as I was starting to get reacquainted with everything that I missed. And, you know, I was yield farming and, you know, kind of like trying to figure it out. And I found NFTs in like August or September, uh, late August, early September. And immediately they start making sense to me because I started playing Fortnite at the beginning of quarantine. <laughs> so we are actually um, in the classes of the same era. We came into crypto around 2017. I came in, I started really paying attention in like June or August or something, uh, and then went all in in like September. But where you had the dot-com bubble in, in your belt, I had nothing. Mm-hmm. And so your dot-com bubble lessons was my crypto 2017 lessons, where, you know, went all in on Ether at $300 in like the middle of 2017, goes up to $1,400. I'm like, wow, this is insane. Like, uh, I'm a psych student. I had no idea that this would be like, uh, I would have this money. And then it goes down to $600 and I'm like all in. And then it goes down to $400. And I'm like, all in. And then it goes down to $200. I'm like, all in. And then it goes down to $80. I'm like, well, I'm out of money. Uh, (laughs) And so it's funny. And this this is why like everyone talks about like, oh, class of 2017, class of 2013. Now we have the class of 2020 and 2021. And like, it's kind of just like this rite of passage for so many people that don't know about money and finance to buy the top, have an insane amount of conviction not understand that like it doesn't matter about your conviction it really under matters about like market dynamics and that a lot of people make their first very big lesson into the space thankfully very early mm-hmm. right like i think one of the best benefit tailwinds that you've had is you had your very big burn at the very beginning of your career and so you kind of kind of can understand like the the highs and lows of emotions as the charts go through highs and lows right. and then you have that under your belt as you are prepared to ride future waves yeah I, I agree. It's very interesting. Like, at, you know, sitting on a trading desk, like we always say, like, you know, the worst possible thing that like you could experience as a trader is a lot of success right out the gate. Right. Right. Because then you think, oh, you're the smartest guy in the room. You're invincible. Right. And then you take big risks with big amount of money. Right. I'd much rather learn that lesson with a smaller amount of capital so that I'm smarter and I'm wiser when I have more capital to deploy. Mm-hmm. Do you remember anything in Q1 of 2018? And for the listeners that aren't familiar, that is literally the top of the 2017, 2018 bubble. Do you remember any like signals that you saw? I was like, eh, this is too ridiculous. I mean, I, I think like just prices were going parabolic. Mm-hmm. Everyone had, everyone had a, 
a business, a white paper, right? At the time, mm-hmm. like people were writing white papers left and right. And like, mm-hmm. they were for like some of the craziest things that I'm like, they, like that doesn't even make financial sense as like a business, let alone like a token. And so I just remember, it just, it, they, I just felt the froth, you know? And right. like, I, I mean, I remember when I, I sold, I didn't sell everything like at around these prices, but I remember that day, like Bitcoin went from like 12,000 to 20,000 in like 20 minutes. And I remember my, that day. My yep. best sale was at 16,900. And I was like, oh, like I was patting myself on the back. And then 20 seconds later, I'm like, wow, that was a terrible sale. Because it was <laughs> like 20. And then like an, um, a minute later, I was like, okay, that was a good sale. Right. Like, cause that's how mm-hmm. quickly it was. And right. so like, to me, it was just, it, it was just like the panic of, of masses. And, you know, I've seen that type of hysteria in stocks, uh, you know, just trading for, for so long, you know, obviously on shorter timeframes, but to me, it's like, all right, this is where you sell. And, and then you figure out where, where you're going to buy back. Yeah. People these days that have been in the markets this last few years, we have not seen anything close to the blow off top. That was Bitcoin from 14 yeah. to 20 K. Yeah. It happened in like, I think under 36 hours. Yeah. It went up from 14 to 20, hung around like 20 K for like, four or five hours and then dropped down to 14, like, you know, just 10, 12, 13 hours later. It was absolutely insane. And then the, the worst part about it is that like the, the rest of the market kept on going. And so like Ether topped out like two or three weeks later in slightly a more sustainable fashion. Like it was over a thousand dollars for like three or four days. Mm-hmm. And then the altcoin wave just like pumped right after it. The most like vigorous pump I have seen across the board of all time and that was, it was just like fireworks. It was like yeah. Bitcoin was the first firework. Ethereum was the next big firework. Then all of these altcoins started popping off. And then like after that, over the next like six months, you just saw ashes, just ashes and ashes just like falling from the sky. It was, it's one of the most surreal moments I've ever seen. Yeah. Yeah. You know, and it's really interesting because I'm like, you know, to me, like what's different this cycle than was different than me last cycle. Because I, you know, I met a lot of people that stuck in through the bear market that, are doing obviously great now because they were grinding it out through the bear market. And mm-hmm. like, to me, it's like, I, I always thought blockchain tech was real, but I thought it was like a decade away. Right. And I had mm-hmm. a business trading equities where I was like, all right, do I want to sit there and struggle for the next 10 years for the tech to get right. bought? Or, you know, should I go back mm-hmm. to my bread and butter and then I'll come back when I think it's mature enough. And, you know, like obviously to, to everybody's credit, like, you know, stuff got built very quickly. And so like I sit here and I look at NFTs and I'm like, this is very much the same dynamic. The market's definitely going to get it ahead of itself, right? I don't know if it's there yet or if, it, if we're about to get there or if it happened, but I know just by the nature of markets, that's what happens. So, but to me, it's like, all right, at most, you know, if we, if we were to enter a bear market today, it's like at most, I would think it lasts two years, right? And yeah. so because we're just iterating so fast, things are being built so quickly. And I think... I can make a case personally that like it would happen faster because this is so consumer facing, right? And as adoption increases, it just hits that Lindy effect faster. So to me, I'm like, I'm I'm much more willing to pivot and go into the space full time because to me it feels much closer and much more real than like a lot of what I thought there was like a ton of vaporware at the time. And that's a trade in of itself too, right? And like, not only is it a trade of your money, but it's also a trade of your time and attention. And so like what you're saying is like, oh, I'm ready to put two years, two plus years of my life on the table, even if we go through a bear market, because would you say, I mean, maybe hindsight's 2020, but like, 
going and missing the bear market of 2018 to 2019 and being present during that time, do you think like missing that is a mistake? Like, do you wish you had been there or do you think it was like a good move to like tap out? No, I, I think it was a good move for me because I just, I didn't know how long it would be. So I was, mm-hmm. I much rather would go to where I, let's say had a more secure source of, of revenue. And, mm-hmm. you know, but like I've seen, I, I, I have friends that I made last cycle that, you know, are crushing it this cycle because they stuck around and I'm like, all right, cool. I mean, everybody says, you know, everyone says that, you know, you make your money in the bear market. And that's very true, right? Like you sit there, you grind it out, you work with people that are really building in the space and, you know, you align yourselves with them and you guys are building great stuff together. So like, to me, I don't regret it, but it's like a lesson that I'm like, okay, like this, this next bear cycle, like I'm going to be around, like I'm going to stick around because I know like the things that need to get built that are important to get built because like we're over here fighting for like self-sovereignty and like the open metaverse. And like, we all know what the alternative is. And like, none of us want that for ourselves or our our grandchildren. Right. Yeah. So when you uh, said uh, Jerome Powell started buying everything that triggered your brain to rethink about crypto, can you just walk us through the calculus that you were making in that moment? Yeah. So, I mean, basically here we are about like two, three weeks into COVID um, you know, the markets in free fall, uh, as a trader, I'm, you know, making a ton of money because the volatility is obviously really good. And all of a sudden, you know, the fed does a press conference. Uh, I think it was like March 28th or 29th. It might've been March or April, but I, I don't remember exactly, but I remember he basically said he was going to be buying, they were going to be buying a ton of corporate bonds. And I was, my first thought was like buy gold. Right. But then it's like, right. what's a better bet? Like if I'm buying gold, like what has more leverage, uh, Bitcoin, what has more leverage than Bitcoin ETH? And so like, I immediately just went, I'm like, all right, wire money to Coinbase, buy as much ETH as I can. And, you know, like hang on for the ride because we're about to put the money printers on. Uh, and, you know, obviously like that's what's happened over the last year and a half. Mm-hmm. That's interesting. Yeah. So Ether was at this time, I mean, at the low of March, it was like $80. It was probably around like somewhere like 150 to 200 when you were yeah. uh, looking at, at it right then. Yeah, I think it was right? like high hundreds, maybe low 200s around there. Yeah. Well, uh, congrats on that trade. And I think that's a really emblematic of like what it means to be a good generalized investor. Again, you made the call on Apple, you shorted the housing market, bought gold after the fact. And it's just another interesting story of you being able to just look at the broad current context, the broad zeitgeist of what's going on and like look around and yeah, I think that's a great calculus. Well, gold's the obvious choice. But like, what's the slightly more risky, but also like better gold? And like, and then you just recurse this down to Ethereum. Because right. um, like my my whole my my thought process, and like this was the same thought process I had when I got into NFTs, was like, what's gonna give me the most leverage if I'm right? Right? Like, mm-hmm. if we all have the same trade on, like, then like I want to make the most right. amount of money for the risk that I'm taking. Like me mm-hmm. buying the S and P 500, of course I would have done well but it's a much safer bet, right? Like, right. but if I'm going to be sitting there risking that we're going to be printing a ton of money, like how far out on the risk curve? And I guess this goes back to like my risk tolerance is like, I'm willing to go far out on the risk curve because I'm like, all right, well, I know I have this app, these assets in this basket in my safe basket. And then these are the assets where I'm like, okay, like, let's, you know, let's sit there and, and, and try to make a bunch of money with it. So when you got back into Ethereum, back into crypto in the March trough, was that a trade or did you start really like doing some research and, and just getting in cut, catching yourself up to speed? Uh, what, what was that like? So, yeah, so it, it started me getting caught back up to speed, but I also had like 
a couple projects that I invested in in the 2017 cycle that were starting mm -hmm. to unlock. So, you know, as they're starting to unlock, they're like, okay, like what wallets do we send, we send your tokens to? And then, you know, I start researching on them. And then, you know, like, it, it's so funny. I had a wallet that I hadn't opened in a while and mm -hmm. I had SNX in the wallet. And I'm like- Synthetics? Yeah, and I was like- You I bought Haven in 2017? Yeah. And so I was like, <laughs> I don't know what this is. I'm like, I don't know what this is. I haven't, I haven't uh, kept up with any of this. So I sold it and I sold it, I think, like three oh, no. days before it got listed on Binance. So like I sold oh, it right no. before it started mooning. And, but like, but I was very grateful because like at the very least, I was like, whoa, like here's a bunch of tokens that I thought were worthless that are actually worth like a good amount. And I, I converted to Ethereum because I knew what ETH was. I didn't know what SNX was. And I was just starting to go back down the rabbit hole. And like, you know, like, as like, you know, when things are going up in price, you know, you're, you start getting more interested. And then, you know, I started talking to my friends that stuck around and they were telling me, oh, listen to this, you know, listen to this podcast, you know, talk to this guy, follow this person. And, you know, I was just kind of yield farming and just kind of just following people that I thought were smart. Like I got rugged in sushi, you know, like I was yield farming sushi yeah. and I got rugged. And so like, but to me, it's like a learning experience, right? Like I was, you know, I was trading in the mornings, I was trading equities. And then I'd be done by like 11 a.m. And probably for the next like 12 to 15 hours, I'd be reading about DeFi and listening to podcasts and like just trying to understand because I knew I had a lot to catch up on. Yeah. So uh, you, you came into Ethereum right before DeFi summer, which is literally the perfect time to get into Ethereum. So as somebody that's been following just financial markets for all of his life, what did DeFi summer look like? Because I mean, for somebody in crypto, it's like, oh, we're doing a new weird thing. Okay, that's great. But like, from a, I think from a more uh, grounded financial perspective, DeFi summer might be kind of surreal. What was DeFi summer like for you? Um, so you know, I was playing with like a small amount because I was like, all right, like you know, if I can like you know three x or five x like this stack, then like you know, I can put myself in a position. And I like, I very much was like, all right, everything that I had in the in the space. Uh, that I, let's say like the synthetics and like a couple other tokens, I'm like, all right, that's going to be like what I build off of. Right. Like I had like the amount that I bought in March, that was kind of like my safe, my safe stack in, in this risky asset, but I wasn't going to be risking all of that. And so I was just like relearning. I think one of, I think one of my, uh, things that I'm really good at is understanding that I don't know everything and that I'm willing to learn and that there's not just one way to make money, right? So it's like, if I see people, like I'm not, I guess your your typical finance bro that's like, oh yeah, like there's only one way to get rich and there's only one way to make money in public markets is I'm like, well, if I see a lot of people making money, like, like I'd be an idiot to not try to find out how, right? And just understand the mechanics of that, how that works. And, you know, understanding that I can learn from like anybody, whether, even if they're younger than me, like that doesn't mean that I'm smarter than them, right? Like it's like there's a lot of people in the world that are much younger than me that are much smarter than I am that I can definitely learn from. And that like when I was approaching DeFi summer, I was just like, again, reading as much content as I could get into a pool, ask people questions and then kind of learn by doing because that's, you know, I like sometimes I would read these medium posts and I'm like, I, that was Chinese to me. Like, I have no idea what this person's saying. But then if I put like $10,000 at risk, like I start figuring it out real quick, right? Because I, like, yeah. I don't want to lose that money. So it's like, you know, like how, how do I minimize risk? And it was like very much a learning process. I knew that I was, I didn't have like the best edge because 
you know, people that understood the Medium posts, that understood code and how to read the code, like before something launches, they understood the risks way before the night, way before I would, right? And like, you know, if there was the chance of a rug pull, like, you know, all these things. And so like, to me, I, I knew I was fighting an uphill battle, but like there was money to be made. And I, I was, it was very much a learning experience that like, I'm super grateful for because it, again, it was like, you, I learned by doing. And I think like all of us is like, you know, we cut our teeth on, on these things. Like, like I wear that rug pull with, with pride. Like, um, um, you know, I was, I think I was involved in that one. And, uh, I think it was called eminence that, that, um, yep, that rug Andre pull, one, or it yep. might've gotten out like right before the rug pull. Like, but like, just, you know, like I, even if I get caught in these things, I'm not, I'm not like, Oh, like, you know, fuck DeFi. Like, it's like, no, like that's right. part of the learning process, right? Like it's, mm-hmm. you know, if, if money was free, like then everybody, everybody would be getting rich doing it. It's like, it's nothing, nothing in life is free like that. While you were going through DeFi summer, was there any like thoughts in the back of your head? It's like, hmm, this is unsustainable. This is frothy. Anything like that? No, uh, because I, I think that uh, to me, it's, I mean, this is like, this technology is so crazy. Like, the, dude, the first time I used Aave, I posted my ETH as collateral and I got a loan against it in five minutes because I was just using it for the first time and I didn't have to post any KYC. Mm -hmm. And I'm like, dude, this is going to change the world like that. Like, and I would tell my friends in TradVi and they were like, I don't get it. What's the point? I'm like, have you ever, have you, have you ever tried getting a mortgage? Like, do you like, you know, like it it takes weeks and they ask you so much invasive, so many invasive questions and all that is, that's just a collateralized loan. So it's like this, like, to me, this is like such revolutionary technology that I'm like, you know, I'm one of the first, you know, let's say million people that are using it that know it exists, like, and there's billions of people on the planet. Like, this is going to be such like, you know, 10, 20 years from now, this is going to be such proliferating technology that like, even if it is bubbly now, like it long-term, that's like, you know, like investing in Amazon during the dot-com bubble, right? Like it got real frothy. And I think it reached a high of like $90 or something like, and this is like before the the splits that it's had. And here we are 20 years later and you know, it's multiples of that. Right. So like, to me, like the tech is real. How have you gone and balanced your crypto portfolio between like ether and like the DeFi token specifically in this phase of the timeline when like, uh, You've gone through markets where it's almost impossible to like actually price in fundamentals, right? The the dot com bubble, you can't price fundamentals there. Uh, DeFi summer can't really price in fundamentals, not really. Like you can kind of see adoption, but you can kind of see usage, but like that's about it. So when you're balancing like DeFi tokens and Ether, how did you elect to choose the allocations that you've chosen? Um, yeah, I mean, I I think that like to me, it's like because uh, I, I and it, it runs at different points in each cycle. Uh, I think that like I understand momentum because I've been a trader, so I understand mm-hmm. like when momentum's high and you should be in higher beta assets, and when momentum is low, you should be in like the safer assets. Uh, I guess one of the ways I've worked on portfolio allocation is I don't use leverage. I use very very little ever- leverage. Like maybe I'll use it for a trade here and there for like a couple weeks or a month, but I'm quick to pay it off. And like as soon as like a drawdown starts. I just go straight to like no, straight no to loans, right? Because like to me, and like I don't go to cash, like I don't go to USDC, like I'll just go to ETH or, you know, I'm like, all right, well, has the story changed? No. Am I still bullish on it? Yes. All right, cool. Like hold it, right? Like, you know, over the long term, like I think prices will be higher. 
And that's been that like to me, like I slept the best, like being in crypto, even with all this vol, because I don't use leverage, right? So it's like when these down moves are happening, I'm not worried about getting liquidated. I'm not worrying about having to post collateral. And I'm just like, well, has the narrative changed? No. All right. Stay long. Right. And like that to me has been like how I've approached the space. Mm -hmm. And that's probably what kept you in the space, even after DeFi summer kind of came to a pretty quick end, right? Like it, it ended as soon as Ether started moving because during DeFi summer, there was that phase like, oh, it's the DeFi tokens that capture value. Ether doesn't do anything. Then Ether moons finally. And then that was the end of DeFi summer and then and everything died. Hey guys, I hope you're enjoying the conversation with G Money thus far. In the second half of the show, we get more in depth into the world of NFTs because G Money, of course, is a prolific NFT person. And then we also get into the legacy that G Money wants to leave behind now that he is in this world, now that he is you know, one of the most successful NFT curators around, what does G Money want to do with himself? So that was a fantastic question and overall had a broader conversation about the culture of crypto and how it's meaningfully different than the culture of TradFi. And so let's go ahead and get right into that second half of the show. But first, a moment to talk about some of these fantastic sponsors that make the show possible. Gemini is the world's most trusted cryptocurrency exchange. I've been a customer of Gemini since I first got into crypto in 2017, and it's been my main exchange of choice to make my crypto buys and sells. Gemini is available in all 50 states and in over 50 countries worldwide. And on Gemini, there are markets for over 30 various different crypto assets, including many of the hot DeFi tokens. And it's one of the few exchanges that has liquid die markets. Gemini just launched their Earn program, where you can earn up to 7.4% interest on 26 various crypto assets. If you're tired of paying fees in DeFi, or you don't want to worry about DeFi exploits, but you still want to earn interest on your crypto assets, Gemini Earn is the product for you. Another product I'm stoked to get my hands on is the Gemini Crypto Back Credit Card, which gives you 3% cash back on all of your purchases, but paid to you in your preferred crypto asset. When I get my Gemini credit card, I'm going to make sure that I get my cash back in ETH. So whenever I buy something, I get a little bit of ETH bonus back to me at the same time. You can open up a free account in under three minutes at gemini.com slash go bankless. And if you trade more than $100 within the first 30 days after sign up, you'll be gifted a free $15 Bitcoin bonus. Check them out at gemini.com slash go bankless. Bankless is proud to be supported by Uniswap. Uniswap is a new paradigm in asset exchange infrastructure. Instead of a cumbersome order book system where trades are matched with other humans, Uniswap is an autonomous piece of software on Ethereum, which is what Ryan and I call a money robot. No human counterparties or centralized intermediaries, just autonomous code on Ethereum. Input the token you want to sell and receive the token you want to buy. Something brand new in the Uniswap ecosystem is the Uniswap Grants program is now accepting applications for grants. We have been saying this for a while and we'll say it again. DAOs have money and they are in need of labor. If you think that you have something to contribute to the Uniswap DAO, apply for a grant to Uniswap. Just look at the size of the Uniswap treasury. It's almost $3 billion. This mountain of capital is looking for labor. Do you have something of value to contribute to the Uniswap DAO? No matter how big or small your idea is, you can apply for a uni grant at unigrants.org and help steer Uniswap in the direction that you think it should go. That's exactly what we did to get Uniswap to be a sponsor for Bankless, and you can do the same for your project. Thank you, Uniswap, for sponsoring Bankless. So what kept you going? What captured your attention after the end of DeFi summer? I think this is when we get into the story of NFTs. So, you know, I remember all throughout DeFi summer, I'd see on Twitter where people like NFTs are like 
the next big thing. And I didn't have time because like I was still like, you know, I'm learning about sushi, learning about Wi-Fi. And, you know, I'm like, well, these things are mooning so hard. Like, I don't even have time to figure out what NFTs are. And then when when DeFi summer calmed down, I'm like, all right, finally, like I, I had it written down. I'm like NFTs. And when it calmed down, I finally started going down the DeFi, rap, uh, the NFT rabbit hole. And it started making sense to me right away because on the first day of quarantine, I started playing. Uh, I, I, I bought a PlayStation. I hadn't played a video game in 10 years. I download Fortnite. I start playing with my friends and their nephews. And this one kid, first game we play, 12 years old, uh, he goes, what, what skins did you buy? And I'm like, skins? Yeah. Like, they don't give me any special powers. I'm not buying, this game is free right. to play. I'm not spending any money on this game. I'm, I'm like 30 right. years old, right? Like, right. you know, and so- I'm here to pass time, yeah. <laughs> I'm, I'm, here, I'm here to not go crazy during quarantine. And so I sit mm -hmm. there and I realize that uh, you know, first off in like one or two weeks, I start buying a, a bunch of skins and I see like, whenever I play with, with, with these kids, like they switch their skins every, every game, which is, mm -hmm. let's say like every 10 to 20 minutes, like that's like an outfit change. That's literally like you during the course of this conversation, going into your bathroom, changing and coming out three different times. So mm -hmm. I'm like, there's going to be this massive super cycle here that that kid's 12 years old right now. 10 years from now, he's going to be, uh, he's going to have his own discretionary income and he's going to be totally okay with the idea of owning something as a purely digital form. And so I'm like, mm -hmm. there's this super cycle here. I don't know how to take advantage of it because at the time I don't know what NFTs are. And I'm like thinking, I'm like, all right, maybe Roblox or like um, Minecraft, like maybe do something with those and like try to figure out a way to monetize. But really, I was just like looking for a publicly trade at the time. Roblox wasn't public. So I was looking for like a publicly traded um, vehicle to do that. And then finally, in September, I find NFTs and I'm like, holy shit, I'm like this is your skin on Twitter right. and Discord. Mm -hmm. And this is how people are going to want to portray themselves. And, you know, like to me, it just it made so much sense. And I started going down the rabbit hole. And, you know, when I, you know, I, I heard about punks really early on. And I think like the floor might have been like. 700 or a thousand dollars at that point and i was like no punks are too expensive i want to find the mm -hmm. next punks and i start right. going down the rabbit hole and as i'm hanging out in a lot of these discords you know i just realized that like punks are the next punks and and that's when right. you know i bought a zombie and i was waiting for the ape and you know because like i noticed that the people uh in the space especially at that time that were the most knowledgeable generally had crypto punks as their avatars so I was like, oh, like, you know, this, what does this say? Like, this says that you're successful. Mm -hmm. This says that you understand NFTs. This says that you've been around a while. So like, to me, I was like, it's very much like an in-world flex, right? Like for the mm -hmm. same reason that like, if I meet you, I won't tell you how much money I made last year, but if I'm wearing a nice watch, you kind of, that's kind of- You kind of know, right, like, yeah. <laughs> you need to, that tells you everything you need to know without me having to say it. And so mm -hmm. my thesis was that humans- we're going to be humans, whether they were interacting face to face or behind computer screens. And that's really where like the punk's thesis really made sense to me, where mm -hmm. last cycle, I remember everybody was like, when Lambo, when Lambo. And I was like, I think at the end of this cycle, it's going to be when punk. And that's really hmm. why, um, you know, I wrote that thread. I, I bought I bought those punks. And, you know, I, I think I poured a lot of gasoline on that fire. Yeah, what struck me when you were talking about playing Fortnite with these kids, like wearing these skins and like you you did get it. 
and like everyone's going to be wearing a skin in the future. Everyone's wearing it on Twitter. Everyone's wearing it on Discord. You're, you, I'm talking to you wearing your skin right now on Zoom. Like I'm seeing the skin happen and I'm guessing it, maybe it's not this easy right now, but in the future you could press a button and put on a different punk or a different NFT, right? Yeah, for sure. You know, and I think like a lot of people are working because you already see it on Twitter, right? Where people mm-hmm. will change, like depending on the project that they, you know, maybe they just minted or they want to support. Mm-hmm. It's like, you know, listen, not everybody, unless you're Steve Jobs, not everybody wears the same clothes every day. Right. So it's like, you know, you want right. to express yourself differently. Right. I'm drawing a lot of connections to this part of your career back all the way back to you noticing everyone wearing Apple headphones on the subway. Right. Like, <laughs> but it's a little bit different where. If everyone's wearing Apple headphones on the subway, everyone is already buying Apple products. But what you connected is all these kids playing Fortnite and then the NFT mania, uh, or not mania, but like NFT adoption. And so like one was actually like reactive, like, oh, I'm seeing Apple sell a bunch of products. One's a lot like proactive where like, oh, I'm seeing kids skins in Fortnite. And then there are these like digital skin things. Maybe this is just like a story of you just getting better at noticing patterns, but any like insight or comments you want to add to that? Yeah, I think it's probably me just getting better at noticing patterns over time. Uh, Mm -hmm. I'd like to think I have more wisdom at this point than I did 20 years ago. And I just seeing like, like the super cycle, right? Like, you know, and I started asking like last year, like I would start asking all my friends that had kids, I'd be like, well, what what do they play? What do they ask for? Like, cause I remember when I was a kid, like I'd go to Toys R Us and be like, oh, I want this toy. And these kids are asking for like V-Bucks and like, you know, whatever it is, the in-game currency for whatever game that they're playing. And it's like, I would ask the parents, like, what are, what's the stuff that these kids are interested in? And I just noticed more and more that it's very digital, like digital based assets. So to me, it's like, okay, that kid, you know, can't afford this today, but at some point in the future, he will be okay with affording this, right? Like, Whenever I have these conversations about describing an NFT, like the people that have the hardest time understanding it are over the age of 40. The people that get it right away are un- like when I explain it to a teenager, they're like, that is awesome. How how can I do it? And like I've seen my friends, my friends, kids that are like 14, 15, like become like their NFT person. Right. Like they're they're the ones that are minting. They're the ones that are buying and trading and, and doing all this stuff. And because they just innately understand it because they've grown up with technology their entire lives. So like, to me, it's like, yeah, like as these people spend more time in front of a screen, like they're, they're going to be spending more money on them too. Mm-hmm. So there's two other Layer Zero podcasts that I've done that I see a lot of patterns with this story. One is with uh, Eric Connor, who like you went to university for finance or, or business and then started working at a bank right after, right during like 2008, actually started working at a bank. And then he got into the world of crypto and Ethereum, was generally a pretty good trader or understanding the psychology of markets. And then he got into NFTs and that's kind of like where he like prefers to be now. And then same thing with DC Investor, a very similar timeline with you, which is the layer zero I did last week, which is watch the early days of the internet, also was very knowledgeable investing and now kind of only cares about, well, not only, but like really cares about NFTs. Like he's kind of like the NFT guy. Do you have any insights about like, why people seem to converge upon like the NFT markets, the NFT game? Well, I I mean, I think a lot of it has to do with like the thing that really interests me about the NFT market is that I really do think that NFTs are the Trojan horse for crypto to go mainstream. So when Mm -hmm. I look at that and like, you know, like last summer I was involved in DeFi 
but like it's difficult you know what i mean like it's you know you have to not everybody wants to play a money game where you know you're going to get a high apy but then like you need to worry about like you know the coin going down and like it it's a difficult game to play but like everybody inherently understands what collecting something is like right like what artwork is like so to me like i when i see consumer adoption like it literally is is like it comes from nfts so that makes mm-hmm. me way more excited about nfts than crypto in general because i think i think we you can probably agree is that when the way we get mainstream adoption is when people don't even know that they're using crypto right yep. and i think nfts are are the way that that happens so that's why i'm super excited about nfts i think that makes a ton of sense right and the nfts just have that surface area for adoption, right? Like you're not supposed to like every single NFT. You're supposed to like the NFTs that you like. But as an investment vehicle, there's a difference there where like NFTs, they're going to be a bajillion NFTs, right? We're going to mint one NFT per interest that there is. So as a, like an asset class, I kind of think it makes NFTs really, really hard to invest in because like on the other side of things, like Uh, there's just Ether. There's just one Ether, right? Like, do you believe in Ethereum? Oh, you buy Ether. Do you believe in NFTs? Well, which one do you want? And so like actually getting broad exposure to NFTs, I think is, is kind of hard. And so maybe the answer, like that's why there's like this fat CryptoPunk thesis, right? It's like, well, CryptoPunks might track like the NFT market at large just because they are the OG NFT. Do you have any thoughts on like how to actually gain exposure to NFTs when the whole thing is supposed to be like uh, fragmented? Yeah. So, I mean, I, I think that's why I think I, I always try to red pill people on punks and squiggles and like other like triple A blue chip assets. Because mm-hmm. to me, it's like, all right, if you don't want to do that much work and you want to get involved, like, you know, buy the creme de la creme. Right. Uh, mm-hmm. If you want to go down the rabbit hole, you can go down the rabbit hole as much as you want. But like much like in art, right? Like there's a billion pieces of art that are made every year, but not all art accrues value. Uh, you know, the same thing with like sports cards or or anything that's that's made. There's certain things that accrue value because people covet it and people want it. And that's where the value accrual goes. So like, to me, it's like no different than investing in like the art market or some other like high-end asset. You just need to do more work, right? Like, but I do think that, and you're starting to see it already where, index funds are being made to track, you know, certain projects so that it just becomes as easy as owning like an ETF, right? Like where it's like, okay, I just want exposure to NFTs. Like I just buy this token and that gives me exposure to these nine or 10 different projects, right? Either through fractionalization or through outright ownership in the treasury. So like, it's definitely not easy. Like I think the fact that people have made a ton of money uh, in the last year makes it seem like it's easy, but you know, I firmly believe like nothing is that easy in life. So it's like you need to do your homework and, you know, do your own research, as people always say. Right. Do you think chromies have as much like value capture accrual as punks or chromie squiggles specifically or in that ballpark? Or is it really just like punks are the lead and that's kind of it? Yeah, no, I think punks are like number one. Uh, I think mm-hmm. squiggles are up there because, you know, you look at Artblocks as a platform and what it's been able to do in the space. It probably has one of the best communities in the space. Snowfro himself is like an OG punk holder that claimed crypto punks on the day they were released. And so like, to me, it's like, they, they will be historically significant, right? Like, as I start talking to more and more people from the contemporary art world, I, I always find it interesting how a lot of them can resonate with Chromie squiggles, uh, more so than they can with punks. 
And so like, you know, to me, it's like, all right, if these people will be coming into the space, uh, especially with like the price is way less than than what a punk is, like they'll probably start allocating more money towards towards squiggles. And and so to me, like I put squiggles up there. It's it's Snowfro's Genesis piece. It's an ode to punks. And I think Artblocks is going to be a historically significant platform, uh, especially in the generative art space. So, I'm, you know, I, I like squiggles for that reason. Yeah, for me, the squiggles are fun just because they're like the perfect level of nihilism. It's like pretty nihilist, like, oh, a chromey squiggle that's going for like $50,000. That's kind of weird. But also there is some art there as well, right? Like, yeah. you know, it's colorful. It's got a shape. There is some art there. But then it also has like a kind of a the sticking power of punks because chromey squiggles are like the first art blocks project, right? right? And so like first art blocks project, perfectly like balanced nihilism and then also some cool colors that like, I could see myself having my chromey squiggle on my wall somewhere. Like yeah. metal cutout print, like I would do that. And that's kind of like how I think about a lot of like the art blocks art that I look at. It's like, could I see that on my wall? Right. Uh, and that's that's how personally I value these things. And I, and I think that's the right way to do it. Right. Like that's what people always say when you buy art, buy art that you like, not you like when, when the second you're in it to try to make money, then, you know, like you're you're going right. to lose. Right. Like I right. missed out on Bored Apes because I was like, ah, I don't really I don't really like the art. You know, mm-hmm. was that that was a bad financial decision. But. I didn't want to buy something that I wasn't going to be like, all right, I'm proud to own this. The cool thing that I think about the NFT market and I think why people end up, not everyone, but a lot of people end up gravitating towards the NFT world is there's a much larger sense of community and culture in the NFT market than there is in like TradFi, right? Like, Mm -hmm. sweet, you made the calls on Apple, but like, did you make any friends along the way? Right. Like with NFTs, like there's a lot of culture along with that. Tell us about the culture side of things that you've been able to experience with NFTs. Yeah. I mean, just the community, like, you know, the number, I know everyone says, and it's so cliche, but like when I first got into the space, people would be like, oh, like, you know, like you should look at this, you should look at that. And it wasn't like, I I feel like sometimes you would get in DeFi where like somebody's trying to show you something because they want to dump on you. Like this was more like, no, like, this is like I Snowfro was the guy that red pilled me on punks, right? And he mm-hmm. was like, dude, like you need to buy a zombie. Like you're spending so much money in the space. Like this is like the creme de la creme. And I was like, really? And like, you know, he spent like two days explaining it to me why, why I needed a zombie and why why I needed a punk, but specifically like an elite, an elite tier punk. And like, you know, it just like that, that helpful attitude, like. I made, I've made so many friends that like I've met in the last three, four months for the first time that, you know, it like, it's really heartwarming where these people that I've spoken to online every day for like six months prior or a year prior. And we meet for the first time, like one of my buddies picked me up from the airport. I had no idea what he looked like. We're sitting there DMing on Twitter being like, yo, what, what do you look like? What are you wearing? Yeah. What what are you wearing? wearing? (laughs) What car do you have? Like, and like, but yeah, when we met each other, we gave each other like this biggest hug, like, nice. you know, like long lost friends that haven't seen each other in 10 years. And it was like, yo, dude, like, you know, we made it right. Like we're fucking we're doing great. And I don't know, like it, I never I never experienced that, obviously, in the stock market, even, you know, running a trading desk, trading side by side with people every day. Uh, there's something about the community of all doing it together and building all these things from scratch that I think like really resonates with people. Is there any advice that you have for people who want similar experiences? How did you find your friends? How did they find you? Was it just like being in Discord? What's the process of establishing relationships that you found? 
Yeah. So I, the best is like interacting with people, like interact with people as much as you can go to the discords of the projects you like. You're going to find people that like, just like in real life, right? Like you find your people that you gravitate towards and the same thing is going to happen uh, online, right? Like mm-hmm. a lot of, like I was super active in the punks discord really early on art blocks. And then like, you know, then you start having conversations with people on the side and you're like, Oh, like, then you start doing deals with these people and like, and then those friendships build over time. Uh, the same thing with Twitter, just interacting with people and you're going to find like your, your tribe, right? Like I, I firmly believe that the more you put yourself out there, uh, the more you'll find the people that like are like you, that you want to be associated with. And that to me is like, it, it's funny. Cause like a lot of projects will, will be like, Oh, Hey, like, yo, can you help with marketing? I'm like, you don't, you don't even want that, right? Like just go out there and interact with people on Twitter and, you know, be active in discords because the people that will like your artwork will find you, right? Like you don't want to have to sell your stuff because you're trying to sell it, right? Like you want people to buy it because it resonates with them. And like, you know, Twitter is probably the best free marketing that you could get, you know, organic, right? That, that people will see your stuff. Making a name for yourself in the punk discord is like kind of difficult because that thing is so active and there's so many people there. And yeah, there are definitely like the people there on a reoccurring basis. What about how like actually trying to like stand out from the crowd in discord is like, oh, this person has valid, interesting contributions to the discourse versus, you know, the just the bots that are there. Yeah, I mean, I, I think, you know, anytime you add value, whether it's in discord, telegram, Twitter, like people will find you. Um, I think that, you know, one of, I think one of the reasons it was, uh, let's say easier for me to build a brand was because mm-hmm. when I did what I did and I wrote my thread about it, nobody was really, people were calling me an idiot, right? Like for spending six figures on a picture. And here we are today where people are spending seven, eight figures on, on JPEGs. Right. And so I think that, you know, the more value you add, the, the more people will see it and, uh, and you'll find your tribe that way. And, you know, it's, it's very much like, the Gary V mentality where it's like, you know, you, you work and you put your stuff out there uh, and people will find you because there will be people that want to listen to what you have to say. Not everybody will necessarily have to want to listen to what you have to say, but you'll find the people that want to be part of your community and that want to interact with you and add value to you the way you add value to them. So what's next for G money's NFT portfolio? Do you have any like big plans as to like what to do with the damn thing? Um, you know, I'm still, I'm still holding. I'm not necessarily minting as I'm not an active minter. You know, I'll do stuff every once in a while. Um, I like, I think that like I own some of the best assets in NFTs. Mm -hmm. So for me to want to sell them and I know 6529 says this all the time is like, don't sell the institutions, your JPEGs. Like, I agree. Right. You yeah. know, like there's yeah. like if you sell something, yeah, fuck them. yeah, like if you, but like the thing is like, if you sell a grail of something, right. And like, like if you were to sell your punk, like mm-hmm. there's no way it's, it'd be very, it'd be very unlikely that you could buy your punk back at a lower price. Right. Like if you were to right. try to buy it back, you'd have to buy it at a significantly higher premium. If right. you want that exact punk. Now, if right. you don't care, then that's fine. You can buy a different punk that's similar, but not exactly. But it's like these things are all one of a kind. So to me, I, I want to hold on to these things because I do think that, you know, if if crypto does what we all here that are here in the movement right now think that it's going to do, then you're talking about some of the most, you know, grail pieces of the next hundred years. So like, why do I want to sell that for what I think will be pennies on the dollar? Mm-hmm. 
So that's a great perspective, but I was actually interested in like how your NFT like curation will manifest in like the metaverse or the physical world. Are you going to like make some sort of digital gallery? Like, because if you're going to hold these things for life, like you need to display them somehow. Oh yeah. So what are the displaying plans for G Money's NFT portfolio? Um, so I'm, I'm figuring out how to get a digital display in, in my mm -hmm. house. I don't have as much uh, wall space as I like, so I'm trying to figure okay. out where to put it. But then mm -hmm. also like, you know, there's, a couple digital galleries that I want to be setting up. I've just been taking my time on it because, you know, I know that like we're not fully immersed in the metaverse just yet. So I know mm -hmm. it's not like I need to rush out and show it, show them off. Right. Like even like my, like my OpenSea wallet, like anybody can check and people are like, Oh, like, I love this collection. I love that collection. It's like, all right. Like I don't need to, I, I'm not necessarily focused on curating my collection just yet because I'm still in like the accumulation phase because I know that the curation and the showing it off part will come uh, soon. And I know mm -hmm. when that comes, I'll, I'll be right there at the forefront with it. But to me, it's like, I don't, it's not, to me, there's no huge rush to go out right. and do it, but it's something that yeah. like I'm actively thinking about. You say that you're still in the, uh, the curation collection phase. What about your NFT portfolio do you think is missing that, that you're really looking for? Like, what do you want to hunt for? Um, I mean, I guess maybe some one on one. I, I I love an X copy. Probably like mm -hmm. my biggest miss is not buying an X copy when I could have. And mm -hmm. um, now like they're just super priced very high. Um, and then just like kind of like you know I I love like I love bringing artists into the space. Like Justin Armasano is a great story where I help bring him into the space and then just watch. Oh, that was you. Time. Yeah, like I was he. <laughs> I mean, it's he hit me up because I he either heard me in a clubhouse or he saw me post it on an Instagram that I bought the ape for 150 K and he originally wanted to sell me his entire collection of twin flames for a hundred thousand. And I was like, dude, like keep the physicals, break it up into a hundred pieces and sell them for a thousand bucks each. And I thought I was going to hear from him in like two or three months. And he, he like calls me back in three days. Like I sold them all. Like, thank you. Like you changed my life. And then he started going down the rabbit hole. And, you know, obviously has done incredible things for the space. He's done incredible things for his own personal career. And like, I'm super happy. Like to me, that's one of my great, like I, that's one of my proudest moments in the space of being able to onboard somebody that has had such a huge impact on the space themselves. Mm -hmm. Actually, I had the fortune to actually uh, get dinner with Justin in New York the first day I was in there. And that man just exudes kindness. He just very, very concerned for the world and wants to see the world become a better place. Yep. And also has dope photography skills. Yeah. 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 No, it's like, it's incredible. And like everything that he's done for the space and, you know, he always wants to connect with people and, you know, he's a connector mm -hmm. himself. And like, I, I'm, I'm just, I'm so happy that he's part of the space and able to do what he's been doing. Cause to me, he's probably the best, the best community builder in crypto with what he's been able to do and in such a short amount of time. Totally, absolutely. Um, one perspective I'd like to get out of you is like, there's, especially in crypto, crypto has this very powerful force of like making people never feel like that, that they have enough. And you also have to play the game. Like we're in the world of scarcity technology and scarcity technology puts in scarcity mindsets about people. And you say that you're still into, uh, you know, collecting your NFT portfolio, your portfolio is not done. Do you ever have like a vision of the future where you're like, you know, I'm done. I did it. This is, I'm where I've wanted to always be. And now I'm here. Like, is that a destination or does that place not even exist? So I kind of feel like I'm already there, right? Like mm -hmm. I, I think that it's, it's funny you mentioned the scarcity mindset. Cause I think from, 
from really early on, humans in general are taught the scarcity mindset. Like that's survival, mm-hmm. right? And I don't know when it happened exactly for me, but it it there's something that switched from being a scarcity mindset to an abundance mindset that really was like, okay, like, you know, how can I pay it forward? It, not every interaction should be so transactional where like, mm-hmm. if you get something, I get something, right? Like there could, there's, there exists a world where I can help you and I don't expect anything in return, you know? And I guess coming from finance, which is very much a zero sum game, I lived, I lived and breathed that scarcity mindset for 20 years professionally. And so, you know, like I always had like a number that I wanted to hit that, you know, I'm like, oh, if I hit this, like I'm going to take my foot off the gas and I hit that number and I like, I crushed that number. And like, now I'm sitting here it's like, okay, so now that like, you know, for all intents and purposes, money isn't as big of an issue for me anymore. Like, what do I want? And it's like, I want to increase adoption of NFTs because if I can help increase adoption of NFTs, then that increases adoption of crypto, which gets us to the future that I think uh, we deserve of self-sovereignty, right? And so to me, it's more so about like, what can I do to push the space forward? It's not so much uh, about that scarcity mindset of like, oh, how can I hoard more? How can I make more money? Uh, The money is great because it helps you get to the vision and it gives me the means to help achieve that vision. But like, it's no longer necessarily just about the money for me, which, um, you know, if you told me that 10 years ago, I would have called you crazy. But like, it's amazing being able to see that transformation in myself, but then see it uh, throughout the space with a lot of people that are like, oh, yeah, like, I don't need to work, but I'm working my ass off because like, I want a better future for humanity, right? And like, to me, like crypto is probably one of the best, like the best way to leverage your time to have like an impact on humanity, like 10, 20, 30 years from now. I think one of the best reasons why I truly resonate with crypto is that Kevin Awaki gives this line, like crypto wasn't meant to make you rich, it was meant to make you free. Mm-hmm. Uh, and well, wealth is a part of freedom, right? Like you need wealth to have freedom, but wealth doesn't necessarily give you freedom. You need all the other thing properties that, that give you freedom as well. And I think one of the best things about crypto is that like it allows a lot of people to go from the scarcity mindset into this abundance mindset. But then the next step after that, once you are in the abundance mindset, if you still want to pump your bags, the way that that works is you also carry along people who are still in that scarcity mindset and then also get them into the abundance mindset. Mm -hmm. And that's just the simple nature of a positive sum game. We're like, hey, I have enough, but if I want this to go up, I need other people to have enough as well, right? They also need to come with us. And that culture is something that I don't think that you find in in TradFi, right? And one of the most underappreciated properties of crypto is we can export our culture to the world that needs it the most. Yeah, no, I I totally agree. That that was really well said. Um, I agree with everything, right? Like it's, Mm -hmm. and it's it's funny because like, I'm sure you, I, I don't know, can you pinpoint that, that where that shift happened for you? Um, yeah, it happened around like the 2000 to 3000 ether price where I stopped caring about the grind. It's like, oh, like I need to make sure I'm on the next wave. Like I need to capture all. And at some point I was like, I wore Che Guevara shirts to middle school. And so like, I, <laughs> I have like this very much like, I was like, oh yeah, capitalism is evil, blah, 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 blah. Very much like learned the error of my ways and like now appreciate capitalism for what it is. And now I'm just like the grind of the psychological stress of like the uh, scarcity mindset, I was just turned off from. 
And so like, I remember going through 2017, like trading 50 times a day, like learning about a token, buying that token, learning about a new token, selling the old token, buying a new token, like hopping from token to token. And then in this new bull market, I very much learned that like, not only does not doing that like ease off a bunch of stress, but I also make more money by not trading away into impulse, right? And so like having a much slower mindset and like having a much longer term thinking has helped me have just a, a broader perspective. Uh, and I think that that longer term mindset turned into like, hey, this is not about like me catching every single wave. This is me exporting the values and the culture as much as possible. Because again, the best way I'm going to be able to pump my own bags is to get as many people into crypto as possible. Yeah, no. And and that's like a great, a great thought, right? Because like I sit there and like, I, dude, I, I don't check the price of crypto like that much anymore. You know what I mean? It's like mm. the, the, the times that like, like, I think yesterday, like we made an, or two days ago, we made an all time high in Bitcoin. I was like, Oh, I'm like, cool. Like I had, no, I had no idea. Right. Because I'm just mm-hmm. so busy. I'm like, all right, what's my mission? How do I export that culture to other people? Because that increases adoption. Right. And that's kind of what my main goal is. And, you know, if, if like you said, like if by doing that, the value of my portfolio goes up, great. But like, I do know that ultimately long-term, the value of the portfolio will go up. So that will take care of itself as long as I'm doing my job, right? Yeah, I'm a big fan of not having any stress these days. And like being Zen about the markets is definitely key for that. Gee, when we go and fast forward 10, 20, 30 years in the future, what do you want the legacy of G Money to look like? Um, Just somebody that pushed the NFT space forward that helped people understand that like everything in the real world is an NFT. Uh, and as we go more digital, uh, the way to that self-sovereignty is through decentralized uh, systems uh, right. so that, you know, we're not slaves to to any overlord or, or anything down the road. Right. Like I, I'm I'm trying to go as fa- as far away from that dystopian uh, future that that will always be pictured in sci fi um, so that we can be free to do what we want. Mm. Well said, sir. Uh, gee, we've shook hands a number of times in real life, but we're about to do it again in uh, Metaverso in December. You want to pitch to the listeners why they might be interested in coming to Puerto Rico to go to Metaverso? Yeah, for sure. It's a, it's a one-day NFT conference on December 7th in Puerto Rico. It's the beginning of Puerto Rico Blockchain Week. Uh, and so myself and a couple of people based out of PR were like, why don't we just get together and like you know get some of the best minds in NFTs and you know talk of talk shop for a day and uh and that's kind of where the genesis of it came from myself and amanda cassett uh decided to team up and and throw this great event and i'm super excited we have a lot of great speakers you're hosting one of the panels so um thank you for that and and looking forward to it you still still playing fortnite these days uh not as much as i used to but i i literally want to that just because I've been traveling, but I definitely, I definitely need to get back on. If if you want to play sometime, let me know. <laughs> I don't have an Xbox. Sadly, oh wait, no, it's on PC though. I can play on PC. Yeah, yeah. Play on PC. <laughs> Do they? Well, maybe one day when they upload punk punk skins to Fortnite, I'll get myself in there. I'm patiently waiting for that day. <laughs> yeah. How else do you like tune out and relax from these markets? Um, you know, I I'd say probably just going out and uh, like going. I, like I love food. I'm a foodie. And just mm-hmm. hanging out with friends. And I, I generally try to be present when I'm with people. So that forces me to obviously put the phone down and and not be on mm-hmm. Twitter or any socials. And to me, that's like a great way to tune out, right? Because like, I think a lot of times we get lost in, in the grind. And to your point where like, you know, you go down the rabbit hole and there's always 
there's not enough time for all the work that needs to be done. So there's times like I sit there and I'm in front of my computer. It's like two o'clock in the morning. It's like, dude, you need to one disconnect and to go to sleep. But then also like, you know, sometimes you just need to go out and have some times uh, with friends. Right. And, and appreciate the human element. You've been doing a decent amount of traveling into all the, uh, the crypto conferences. Why do you like doing that so much? Um, Cause I, I like the human element. And I think that, you know, at the end of the day, like for the same reason that you have this show, right. Where it's like crypto, mm-hmm. as much as it is about the tech, it's about the humans that are behind it. Right. Like if, if you had like bad people with bad intentions, building this tech out, it would show in the tech. Right. And so uh, to me, it, it's very much about like, how do I do my part? Right. I'm not a builder. I'm an investor and an advocate. So uh, I need to do my part of like advocating for the space and making sure people hear the message from the right person, because there's going to be a lot of people like in any mania that come in and try to get in front of it and try to say that they're the expert when maybe they have their their interests that might not be totally aligned for an open future. Right. So that to me is like I think that that's super important is educating people, uh, educating the mass the masses at large. Uh, and if that means I, I need to travel, like I, I enjoy traveling, but like, you know, sometimes you just want to be at home and, and relax and be more productive. So, but I understand it's part of the job. It's, it's what I signed up for. Would you ever sell your punk? Whew. I don't know how much you want to buy for it. <laughs> oh, no, not me. <laughs> I, 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 I really, it's, it's, you know, I see it as something that hopefully like I pass down to my grandchildren and, you know, it's, it's an, a family heirloom, almost like a crest. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah. But how do you know, how do you know they're not just going to sell it? I, I mean, I, I don't know. You know, hopefully I won't be around when that happens. But <laughs> Gee, thank you so much for coming on to Layer Zero and giving us your time. This was a fantastic story. Yeah. Thank you for having me. I really enjoyed my time. Cheers. All right. Bye.